G'day, Osha here. Thanks for downloading the show. Um, this show is free to listen to, but it's not f- free to make. I make this with uh, a researcher, a producer, and an executive producer. I need to pay all those people. And um, so you might hear an ad. If you do, thank you. Help me pay Andy, Rachel, and Bree. If not, you're going to hear Josh Fox. Let's go. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's not about solar panels. It's not about wind turbines. That's the scientific and technological underpinning for liberating ourselves from four. Hundred years of colonialism and extraction as our main way of doing business. That's what the oil industry is. It's the manifestation of four or five hundred years of colonial racism, environmental racism. It is oppression, and what it is is viewing the earth as a resource to be extracted and a limitless source of income for unequal economic systems. So you see billionaires having huge gains during this pandemic. But we must start to understand that infrastructure is social and energy is a social justice issue. So if we don't start to process that, we're going to continue to have one form or another of of the degradation of the planet because these people are never satisfied. They can never have enough money because money doesn't make you happy. And they haven't quite figured that out yet. That is Oscar-nominated filmmaker and author Josh Fox. And this is episode 387 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for listening to the show today. It is with Josh Fox. He got nominated for an Oscar for his debut film, Gasland. Um, it's a pretty fantastic chat. Great conversation. Thanks heaps for all the emails that you wrote in about uh, Friday's episode, which, oh, hang on very quickly. If you've never listened to this show before, hi. This is a show called Better Than Yesterday. Hopefully, I'm here to help you make today better than yesterday. That's it. Something on this show, something on every show is here to help you make today better than yesterday. You'll hear something you need to hear today. Absolutely. Um, I've been here since 2013. Every Monday, I'm here with a guest. Every Friday, I'm here with you. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a radio guy. Sometimes I play a guitar. Sometimes I don't. 
Sometimes I play D minor seventh chords. Such a lovely chord. And uh, I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I ride bikes and I lift heavy things and put them back down again. I drink coffee. Uh, I wrote a book once. It was about somebody I knew quite well, me. Um, <laughs> sometimes I count flowers on television. Anyway, uh, thanks heaps for the emails about Friday's show, Mental Health, Give Us a Wave. Um, the feedback I got about that blew my mind. So thanks heaps. I really appreciate that. I came up with the idea of the, the episode title was inspired by Queensland's excellent 1994-95 win, 94-95 I think it was, yeah, of the uh, the Sheffield Shield, which was the first time that Queensland won that cricket competition in 63 years. And there was a chant that started on the hill, which doesn't exist anymore. The hill's now a family-friendly stand. The hill, back in the day, cricket grounds had hills. But as, as over time, uh, Australian tastes and, I guess, shall we say, tolerance for drunken fuckwittery kind of decreased. And um, there used to be a hill that you could just sit on. I had a bar at it. I used to go there quite a bit. And it, uh, it got loose. Got loose. It's just a patch of grass that you used to sit on and just fucking get hammered. Anyway, there was a chant that erupted from the hill and they went through the whole cricket team and it, you know, they were just shouting out to the players on the on the team. Like for example, uh so Trevor Barsby, he scored like 150 something runs that day. Barsby, give us a wave. Barsby, give us a wave. Even when he's at the crease, you know, he's getting ready to bat, trying to pull a century, he would just throw his hand up and wave at the crowd. And the crowd will go fucking crazy. And then it was, A-B, give us a wave, Alan Border. A-B, give us a wave. And you can see in the footage, he's concentrating, concentrating, little wave. And there was a point where even, this is old school, there was a scoreboard back, I think Adelaide Oval is the only one left that's got the old school scoreboard that has actually people inside it. Scoreboard, give us a wave. And you just saw a hand come out and give you a wave. Um, so that's kind of where I got the idea from. So... Um, Think of Cranky, even even Alan Border at the crease, concentrating, trying to trying to make the you know history happen with uh, cricket in Australia. Even then, he had time to give away to a bunch of drunken loons sitting on the grass. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that show. <laughs> Let me tell you about my guest today. This is a little cricket history for you, out of nowhere. Cricket, it's a game. If you're listening from America, cricket's a game that baseball started out of. It's a long time ago. Anyway. Let me tell you about my guest today, Josh Fox. He was nominated for an Oscar for his debut film, Gasland, which is all about fracking. Uh, That film came out in 2010 and it's still incredibly relevant and uh, it's well, well worth a look. You may have seen bits of it where people basically light their tap water on fire because the water table is so polluted. It's pretty interesting. He's got a lot more films out all at his website, joshfoxfilm.com, including his latest film, The Truth Has Changed, which is a very interesting watch. You'll hear me go into it a bit more, but yeah, if you haven't seen Gasland and you're kind of interested about coal seam gas and gas lead recovery and all this bullshit our country's going through right now, well worth a look into as to what it's actually all about. It's his tip from the top, not great is what it's all about. He's got a couple of other films which you may want to, I don't know, plan to play with a basket full of puppies afterwards or do something wonderful with your kids, including um, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things the Climate Can't Change, uh, which is a film that does what it says on the box. It is as grim and hopeful as you think it is. 
joshfoxfilm.com is where you can find all these movies. There's a bit of a time difference. It's just a note here. There's a bit of a time difference between Sydney and New Orleans. And when the, the time that we were able to speak, it was quite late at night in New Orleans. And Josh had been uh, filming all day. He'd been working quite hard all day. He stayed up quite late to speak to me. So you're going to hear a tired person talking to me full of coffee. But it's still a fantastic chat. He's a very passionate man. He's an intense man. And I think you really dig it. Enjoy this conversation with Josh Fox. Where, do, where in the world do we find you today, Josh? I am in the great city of New Orleans. Wow. New Orleans. Like, I know, I know some people from New Orleans. What's it like now? Well, New Orleans is the greatest city in the United States. I mean, it's one of the places where culture is... It's actually a very different kind of place than the rest of the United States. It was originally a French city, and, and the influence of, of the French is still here today. It is a city of majority Black people, Black culture, Caribbean culture. It is thought of as the northernmost capital of the Caribbean, and it is a very unique place. Birthplace of jazz, birthplace of rock and roll, home to so many of our most influential artists. And uh, it's just the, one of the best places to be. A lot less stressful and uptight than the rest of the United States. I hear the food's pretty good. Food is amazing. <laughs> People who have who move here or tourists have been known to gain 15 pounds in a, in, a, in a weekend. Right. Just breathing. I've never heard it described like that, the northernmost capital of the Caribbean. That sounds about right. Oh, it's uh, sure. It's a place of in, incredible cultural influence with a rich history from so many different angles. And I, I, uh, I am originally a New Yorker. I fell in love with this city four years ago and started uh, living down here uh, as much as I possibly could. Yeah. What's it been like in the, like, I know that I, I lived in America for 10 years and uh-huh. so I'm, I'm quite familiar with uh, the West Coast and East Coast and a bit of the Southeastern coast and culture. What's the situation like there at the moment? with the the pandemic in in the south where you are it was a place that was hit really hard early on by covid back in last february last march so it was one of the first epicenters new orleans in new york city so people here got a real a dose of like oh my god the, the the real hardship of it yeah so when the vaccines came out i think people were keen to to start going you know the second thing is that it's in the middle of a region which is in new orleans is one of the most progressive cities in, in America, politically left-leaning. It's also surrounded by one of the most right-wing areas in the country, right? So in terms of the vaccination rate in New Orleans, the vaccines are much more available here, I think, because people, <laughs> the rest of the state doesn't want to take them um, because there's this incredible culture war going on in the United States, which is insane. And every single thing that is scientifically proven and beneficial, and if we don't do them, we'll, we'll end the world. You know, the Republican Party decides that it doesn't, it's not really true. And so there's this incredible, there's a group of people in the United States, which is what my most recent film is about, that have become permanently divorced from reality. And unfortunately, down here in New Orleans, we're sort of surrounded by them. However, I think for those two reasons, and also New Orleans is still 100,000 people behind in terms of population where it was in the Hurricane Katrina, before pre Hurricane Katrina, right? So you have a city that was built. Uh, for a lot more people than actually are here. 
uh, and, and a place of incredible intellect and resources. So you have, the, I've got the best medical care, dental care, psychological care I've ever had in my life in this city as compared to New York where everything is a constant stress or as opposed to rural areas where you don't have as many resources. Yeah. So, I mean, New Orleans, in a way, it reminds me a lot of, of Australia because in Australia, you have cities that are built for like, looks like twice as many people as, you know, live there. And I think that uh, we forget in the overcrowded parts of the world, what space is like, what it's like to have less traffic or, you know, buses that are not completely full or, or whatever, you know what I mean? Because you have so many fewer people than other continents, I would say. So New Orleans sort of feels like that. I think it's going through a real renaissance. It's a really, really interesting way to to look at it. Yeah. Josh, I, I know we're, we're here to talk about The Truth Has Changed, which is the, the newest work. We can talk about whatever you want. Well, we get you know, to it or... I want to recognize that, you know, you've got, you've got new work out. It's a very important work and it touches on what you Thank just you. spoke about, the divorcing of reality. Mm. And I, I want to explore it because it's something I, I explore quite a bit on this show. What happened to us as a community that we just went, that's too uncomfortable to believe. I'm just going to believe this other thing. And if you challenge me, <laughs> fuck you. You know, generally. And I find that really really interesting because it, it's, it's I do want to talk about that because you know I, I work sure. with people who are like this and I love them and I care for them and they're incredibly intelligent people and I want them to not feel pain but I can see that they're in a lot of danger you know getting mm-hmm. sucked into this weirdness but it would be remiss of me to not tell you to your face how incredibly powerful Gasland was on me thank you mate and there's a lot of people in Australia I know that watch that film because fracking is a big deal here oh I know and I toured it all over Australia and we had an incredible theatrical run with the Palace Films. And it was very, I think I went on every single news station and newspaper. I mean, when I hit Australia, uh, it was the first time I'd ever been there. And I, I don't think I stopped talking for 10 days straight. It was like mm-hmm. a, a nonstop interview after interview after interview, which was kind of what it was like here in the United States as well. I mean, we really uh, were able to break the, the story in fracking, um, yeah. you know, worldwide. And it's still, unfortunately, as relevant as it was uh, 10 years ago, because we, we do have uh, governments who are per- still pursuing fracking. And uh, the Obama administration's legacy, I mean, remember when that film came out, when that film was shot, that film was begun before Obama was the president. Yeah, It was in the Bush period of time. And the, and the principal evil character in that film was Dick Cheney, right? A man responsible for so many different evils in the world, from the Iraq war to uh, fracking. But the modern legacy of fracking is that of the neoliberal establishment, which is Obama, which is Biden, which is Hillary Clinton, which is the Democrats' embrace of natural gas drilling. And that is something that we have fought across the world uh, for 10 years. I made Gasland and I then made Gasland Part 2, which unfortunately was not really released as big as I wanted it to be in Australia because there's a whole Australia section of that film. And uh, HBO, who put the film out, who owns the film, had an output deal with Sky TV and then they buried it. And I didn't know any of that was happening. So I didn't have any control over it. Hang on, what, a a Murdoch-run company wanted to block a a film about fracking? (laughs) You know, I guess it was one of those things that if HBO owned the movie, as they did here in America, it was an automatic transfer to a Murdoch channel. And Dane Pratsky, my very good friend, the frack man, and a lot of the activists down there were really upset because there was a big Australia section of Gasland Part 2, which we shot in Australia while we were touring the first movie. And you had, you know, people lighting their water bores on fire and you had all sorts of incredible interviews with folks who were taking care of koalas and and it just was extraordinary. So unfortunately, that film didn't come out and have quite the impact as, as the first one did in Australia. 
And then uh, I made a film called How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change or Climate Revolution, which also still hasn't come out in Australia. So what's cool about The Truth Has Changed, sort of hitting Australian media, is that it's actually um, one of the first projects since that one uh, a while ago, yeah. even though I've made you know, four or five feature films since then. I want to talk about Gasland because it's still sure, blindingly in our face. Um, we have our... Uh, one of our leading ministers here, they're still kind of trying to fight for this gas-led recovery from COVID. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, it's the gas, <laughs> the gas-led recovery. <laughs> it sounds like a joke. Angus Taylor, I actually have a letter from Angus Taylor. He wrote back when I, I write my letters of objection and things to my members of parliament and our energy ministers and things. And he wrote me back on a wonderful, like the, it's like the thickest paper with the most beautiful font. I felt like that moment from American Psycho where you, <laughs> you go, wow, that's fucking amazing. Uh, <laughs> that's no inkjet. That's like, that's got the, like moment, a proper yeah. printing press. It's sort of this out. Yeah. Just like bleating on about a gas led recovery. And I've got a high school education. I dropped out after six weeks of university, Josh, and even I can see that this is bullshit. Why do you think that people in positions of power in my country and your country are still pursuing natural gas when renewable energy is the... I mean, these people are economic rationalists. They have got where they've got by going, what would you waste money on that for? Like, you're wasting money, mate. Like, it's, it's the most expensive option. Ten years ago, I co-founded an organization called The Solutions Project. Ten years ago, 2011, with Mark Ruffalo, the Incredible Hulk, as you probably know him, uh, Stanford University's Mark Jacobson, one of the greatest renewable energy planner scientists in the world, uh, a banker named Marco Kraepels, um, and then shortly after that, Leonardo DiCaprio got involved. And we founded this because we, we were showing governments in 2011 that you could have 100% renewable energy. And we were saying this in New York. New York State, which is northern, not a lot of sun, could go 100% renewable energy with, with wind and with offshore wind. And, with, and we showed the mix. In Australia, you could do this. It's like losing weight by getting a haircut. You have so much sun and you have so much space. You know, you could do this so fast. And yet the governments of the world, for a number of different reasons, and I think one of them is, has to do with greed, the incredibly outsized influence of the fossil fuel industry, right? Even though in Australia, you're literally adding colors to the map. It's getting so hot to the weather map. You know what I mean? That you've got black in the center of the country or purple, a color that's never been seen on a weather map because it's so hot. There's never been that temperature before. And you have lost, what is it, a billion animals because of the wildfires? I mean, the most devastating. It makes me crazy to think about it. And yet you're decided as a nation chop off a chunk of the continent and send it to Asia in the form of coal. I've seen some of the most unbelievably outrageous things that I've ever seen in my life in Australia uh, in terms of energy development. You're one of the most highest per capita carbon export, I think, in the world, or one of them. Of course, the United States is now the number one oil producing country in the world. And if you count the fact that the uh, United States basically annexed Iraq, it's even more worse than that. So what I'm what I'm saying is that there's an incredible influence of the oil and gas industry on Congress and on governments. That influence tends to terrify politicians. And they want to run against ExxonMobil, even though they probably are anyway. The Obama administration was incredibly disappointing about this. They decided that they couldn't take on the entire oil industry at once. So they picked one. They picked gas. Instead of fighting coal, oil, and gas, they said, all right, we're going to 
kill off coal. But the natural gas industry uh, went to the Obama administration and many other neoliberal governments. And they, like the witches in Macbeth, lied. They went and said, well, we have half the carbon dioxide emissions of coal. So that sounded like a perfectly reasonable step, like for these centrists, oh, we'll just step down from coal to gas. Well, guess what? They were lying. They were they left out this whole part about how the methane leaks into the atmosphere. Methane is a hundred times more potent than gas. Carbon dioxide is in the, in the atmosphere as a warming agent in the short time frame. And they just didn't mention that. So they created a power plan in the United States called the Clean Power Plan, <laughs> which created a ceiling for carbon emissions that coal-fired power plants couldn't survive. But gas-fired power plants could because they were only counting carbon dioxide, which is idiotic. You know, why not count all the greenhouse gas emissions? So they started building these things like MAD all across America, even though we don't need them. There's one that they're trying to build right over here in New Orleans East, and there were there's six of them in the Scranton Valley, 35 miles from my house in Pennsylvania, where the Gasland film was filmed. So a lot of governments decided in their very lily-livered and unscientific type of way to embrace gas as they were trying to take on the rest of fossil fuels in some way. Of course, that's not what happened with Donald Trump or in Australia because of the conservative governments. They were like, oh, let's just frack and drill and screw everything up for fossil fuels as much as possible. The other unfortunate problem was that the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden created what was called the Global Shale Gas Initiative. They were trying to push fracking in 30 countries worldwide. And much of this was leftover Cold War saber rattling because Vladimir Putin's Russia controls gas supply to Eastern Europe. So this was a Cold War gambit. We could bring ExxonMobil into Poland, Bulgaria, Romania, and America would frack those countries instead of you getting them gas and oil from Vladimir Putin. Well, fossil fuels are the fuels of tyranny, whether that's the tyranny of Saddam Hussein and Vladimir Putin or the tyranny of George Bush, uh, or in this case, the tyranny of Barack Obama. What we should have done 10 years ago was follow the science that we helped to create, this idea of a Green New Deal, this idea of 100% renewable energy, which would have created a whole different type of just economy around the world instead of doing this Cold War politicking and done a Marshall Plan for renewable energy in Europe, in Africa, and all across the world, instead now you see fracking companies moving into the last elephant sanctuaries in Africa, in Namibia. And I'm getting uh, requests for gas land screenings in remote regions of Africa, where uh, Botswana and, and, and Namibia, where they're trying to fight off a Canadian company that wants to frack there and, and despoil a, a pristine region with indigenous people. Um, and you have China escalating fracking. You have Europe escalating fracking at this point in time. And so, you know, there is a possibility that we will have to go back to work and create another film to outline some of the, the, these tyrannical geopolitics. But so you have all these factors at once. Conservative governments sometimes get in power, unfortunately, like Donald Trump, and the neoliberals who are not willing to take a bold stand to do what the science requires. Because if you ask any climate scientist, can you have fracking and a stable climate? The answer is no. You have to pick one or the other. So that's where we're at right now. And that's why I'm, unfortunately, however many, a decade later, Totally happy to talk about Gasland. People should watch Gasland. And if you can get access to it, Gasland Part 2, especially from the Australian perspective. The narrative, and this is what a lot of Australians may not kind of dig, is that 
the narrative of Republicans or in Australia, Liberal Party, not Liberal, bad, other side good. Like whoever, those people bad, other side good. But it's a little uncomfortable to understand that just because they're the other party doesn't make what they are great. They're still pretty horrible in their own way. And that right. can be uncomfortable for a lot of people to understand because they've identified for so long as like, whatever that is, I'm not it. And I'll vote for the other well, guy. Well, it's a binary thinking. Look, Barack Obama and Joe Biden did a lot of great things for America. And Biden is doing a lot of great things for America right now. It doesn't mean that you go to go to sleep and it doesn't mean that they're right about everything. Yeah. And I think that we saw a huge an earthquake in this country, uh, which did a huge amount of good, which I was in support of the Bernie Sanders candidacy in 2016 and in 2020. I was a Bernie Sanders surrogate. I spoke alongside of Bernie uh, many occasions, introduced him, toured with him. And, you know, Bernie Sanders was calling for a ban on second. He was calling for a Green New Deal. And because of the impact, the incredible impacts of that movement, not just in America, but across the world, we are seeing a debate enter a completely different phase, right? So we're seeing the escalation of the, if not the language, but the ideas inside of the Green New Deal, right? That we have to have a renewable energy economy that is based on justice, right? It's not about solar panels. It's not about wind turbines. That's the scientific and technological underpinning for liberating ourselves from four hundred years of colonialism and extraction as our main way of doing business. Okay. That's what the oil industry is. It's the manifestation of four or 500 years of colonial racism. And it is environmental racism. It is oppression. And what it is, is viewing the earth as a resource to be extracted and a limitless source of, of income for unequal economic systems. So you see billionaires having huge gains during this pandemic. But we must start to understand that infrastructure is social and energy is a, a social justice issue. So if we don't start to process that, we're going to continue to have one form or another of, of the degradation of the planet because these people are never satisfied. They can never have enough money because money doesn't make you happy. And they haven't quite figured that out yet. So we're, we're at the bottom of all of this is a shift that we need to make in consciousness towards renewable energy, towards uh, sustainability, and towards a framework of justice in our economics. Um, and of course, the lifeblood of, of international economics right now is oil and increasingly gas. A hundred percent. Like to hear you talk about that, the fossil fuel industry is the extension of colonialism, that concept. I've not heard it described like that before. And that just really kind of blows my mind because like, actually, fuck, yes, it is. It's here's a country that hasn't got it together to do it themselves. Let's just take it. We'll hire a few mm -hmm. of the locals. We'll give them a little little taste. We'll give them a cut. Right. But if you're ready to talk to me about it, I'll be on you know the island that I own in Fiji. However, <laughs> right. the one thing I love about billionaires is they all have waterfront property. Now, their business model is their business model is threatening. Well, they're building bunkers in the mountains now. Here. Yeah, but, but Josh, yeah. you talked about the science and the you know inventing new colors on the weather map, which is terrifying. And the science about weather is so stark and so real. It breaks my heart, but at the same time, it's like, well, fuck, whatever works is what it works. The science of economics is now starting to say, hang on a second, you guys who love money investing in coal infrastructure or gas infrastructure, that's not going to be there in 20 years. So mm -hmm. what are we seeing now? What are you seeing now as the economic scientists are starting to go, guys, guys, you're going to need to start divesting. If you want to still be like flying your own plane to Aspen, 
you know, each member of your family in their own Learjet, whatever the fuck you want, you're going to have to get out of this stuff. What are you seeing as the economic starts to say you need to divest from this? Well, I think that, you know, the capitalist system is moving away from oil and coal and gas. And that's pretty clear, at least in the, in the first world. I'm not seeing that happening in Africa. I'm not seeing that happening in South America. I'm not seeing that happening in China. So what I worry about is, you know, the kind of hand-me-down energy policies uh, that we have uh, for everything else economically. The first world will move to renewable energy and have cleaner local environments while we're exporting the old tech to oppress people in places that are not yet completely destroyed, like the Amazon, or like I mentioned in the Okavanga Delta in, in Namibia, right? So when you're in the United States or in Australia, you're flying on brand new planes. You know what I mean? And they're taking you from Sydney to Melbourne or wherever, right? And what happened to the plane that just got retired from Sydney? Well, it went to South America. And if you go from Lima to Quito, you're probably flying on a plane that was decommissioned in Australia. So what I worry about is that you're going to decommission all these rigs in the first world and then send them all to Africa and send them all to South America. But guess what? It's one planet. So we absolutely have to act globally because the climate doesn't start and end over one country, right? And unfortunately, a lot of the worst impacts of climate change are going to be aimed at the people who are least culpable for this, right? An African child is not using the amount of energy that a Texan is, right? They're using like a hundredth of that or a thousandth of that. And yet those are the places that are going to be hit hardest by climate change. So oil is not only colonialist, but climate change is sexist and climate change is patriarchal and climate change is racist because it will affect those people more. So, you know, the, what the markets do, it's one indicator. What we really have to focus on, in my view, is this idea of justice. That's what I love about the synthesis that just happened in, in the last five years. Back 10 years ago, we were talking about solar panels. We were talking about wind turbines. We are talking about geothermal. And we, as a frontline communities that were taking this on, the anti-fracking communities, we understood inherently that we were dealing with issues of justice, right? But that's what has to be at the forefront now. These companies are not just bad investments. They're practicing genocide. They are practicing ecocide. These things are crimes. So it's not to me that, oh, well, let's move the money away. No, let's take these people who've known for 40 years at ExxonMobil that climate change was, it was their own science in the 70s that showed that climate change was definitely, they pegged it. They had it perfectly. They said 40 years from now, we're going to be at 412 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Well, guess what? They were like dead on and they knew exactly the things that were going to happen. These people should be in jail just as any other criminal should be in jail. If you're not going to put a price on nature, which I don't think we should, you at least have to assign rights to nature. And that that means if you trample those rights, there are serious penalties for those things. And there are companies in this world right now that are operating like outlaws. I'm not going to say that renewable energy companies are perfect either, right? Obviously, we have to have an international standard for any type of extraction. What we just saw in Bolivia is a part of that. You have Elon Musk calling for a coup in Bolivia because he wants the Bolivian lithium he needs for his electric car batteries. Okay, 
So the bottom line is we have to move to renewable energy. Renewable energy works. It is our saving grace. It can be done in a just way. But if we think that that means we can just grow at a rate that we have for the last 40 years, that would be the end of the planet in a whole nother sense, right? 50% of the wildlife on the planet has disappeared in our lifetimes. 60% of animals on the planet have disappeared in our lifetimes. If we head in that direction, we're in trouble. We have to start thinking about taking cars off the road. We have to think about more wild spaces. We have to think about rewilding the world. We have to think about becoming who we really are, which is gardeners. We are the cultivators of biodiversity if we want to be. That's our role on the planet. That's the way we operated for 200,000 years. We can be that cultivator again. We have to throw off this big mistake, which is 500 years of a certain mindset ruling the planet. And that is what, how I define that colonial mindset. People hearing that going, but I've always driven my car. You know, do you think you can have what you described earlier, great healthcare, great psychological care, feeling safe in the city? Do you think you can have all those things, food supply, water supply, and what you're calling for? Let me ask all the parents who are listening. How many times they've pulled their child back from the curb because they almost got hit by a car? But what are your first lessons in safety in this world? They're not, I'm avoiding getting eaten by a lion. They're, I don't want to get hit by the SUV that's coming down the street at 40 miles an hour, right? We have given over our public safety to the oil industry in the form of cars. I don't know how, what the percentage is, but all of our public space is dominated by the fossil fuel industry. Now, I don't know. I happen to think a good form of transportation, especially in places with warmer climates, is a bicycle. Uh, it keeps you in better shape and it, it makes you healthier. So it's also a form of healthcare, right? You sit in your car all day long and you, you probably are not doing your body any good. But for those people who can't take bicycles, I understand that you need other kinds of transportation. There are people with disabilities and so on um, that need to be cared for. But the car and the oil industry, it is an instrument of a great deal of violence. And also it, it makes us unsafe. It makes, think, think about cities or huge neighborhoods, let's say, without cars. Kids can run around and play. You can run around and play. I happen to think that if we were to do something like car-free weekends, for example, so a lot of people work on the weekends, you know, so we'd have to figure out how that would work. Maybe it's car-free Mondays. I happen to think if you started to figure out what life is like without the car and what you would need, to make a functioning civilization without it, right? And I say this as a New Yorker because nobody in New York has a fucking car. So if you start to figure out what yeah. life was like without that constant pollution, noise, yeah. and threat to your physical person, I happen to believe we would start moving in the right direction. So we have to start imagining. Coronavirus gave us this incredible opportunity to dream a new world. Yeah, we got a real glimpse of it, didn't we? Like we got this idea of like, well, well can I work from home? Yeah, I guess I can. You know, I've got this new technology, which is a you know Zoom call, which is one right, on oh, right yeah. now. But it would take you talk. You know, there's New York City, which is dense and vertical. New York City stopped having cars on about fifty percent of its streets during coronavirus. Yeah, and now there are calls in this mayoral race to keep it that way. 
it's it's an amazing possible achievement if we could do that. It would it would need looking at redesigning cities and redesigning urban places and Absolutely. and redistributing, like say for example, town planning in my country at least, and I've seen it in yeah. in the states. It's a very similar setup. You could be living well supplied with electricity, with sewage, with town water, with a road, but you're still twenty minutes drive from a supermarket. Like if you want a, if you want food, you can't walk to get no, food. It's it's very true in a lot of places in America. And I'm not saying that. But our suburbs are not like that. Our cities are not like that. What I would say this is when you say we would need to redesign places, mm. no, that's not true. We would need to design them at, at all. You can walk down the street in New Orleans and I can show you the quality of life experience that you have because this city was designed before cars. Right. Places yeah. that were designed by cars are horrifically ugly places for the most part. Those places were not designed by people. They were designed by and for cars. Now, I'm not talking about rural America. Rural America, rural Australia, that's different. I mean, you, you're right. There are huge, vast distances between places, and it would be more difficult. But I think you would start to see what would happen. You would have uh, community farms. You'd have victory gardens. You'd have food that's closer to you, which is better for you also, right? You start to develop a different understanding of what the native plants and the plants that are around you that you could eat are, you know, what the resources are nearby. A 3,000 mile tomato is a disaster, not just from a fossil fuel standpoint, but it often tastes terrible. So when you have things that are, you have a different focus. And what I'm suggesting is we have to slow down. We got to slow down. Speed limits generally only go in one direction. They're going up, 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 up. When I was a kid, the speed limit was 55. Now it's 85. I'm going to argue that it should go back to 55. And I'm going to argue that people should be slowing down because we cannot continue at this pace. Coronavirus was like a nature's stop sign. And it literally was the result of us encroaching further and further into natural spaces, right? A bat that used to have a tree probably flew over somebody's restaurant in Spain or wherever the coronavirus came from. And because it no longer had its natural habitat, that zoonotic transfer happened. And there are hundreds of thousands of other possible parasites that could do the same thing. Nature is our, the edge of nature, which is the name of my film for this year, that I just finished sh shooting, is the edge of our existence. So when we, when we think about what we have to do, yes, design is incredibly important, but we have given design over to the combustion engine. We have given design over to the General Motors and, and the Ford company. That is not the, the case in, in Japan. That is not the case in a lot of, in, in many of the cities of Europe that, that we think of as the most desirable places to be. Why? Because they were built before cars. If you go to a place that was built in the car, what does it look like? It looks like a shopping mall with vast parking lots full of nothing. And spaces that have absolutely zero aesthetic value and no public function at all, no political function, no cultural and artistic function. That's like tacked on at the end. Like, it's like amazing to me. You go to a Walmart and they have a little curb and they have a shrub. You know, it's like, that's what you, what you did. Really? That's it. Mm. You know? So the idea is that yes, the fossil fuel industry has taken away our sense of what we can create why, could, why do you have to live in a place that I would never live in a place? Well, I do in the middle of the woods in Pennsylvania, but I think the rural areas have a completely other type of, of voice that need to manifest. When we're talking about cities, and certainly 
when we're talking about suburbs, which are probably the most wasteful type of, of arrangement to live in, right? It is the suburbs which are dependent on cars, which have everybody's house climate controlled and a huge space for every person, you know, walled off from everyone else. That is the breeding ground, not only of the overconsumption of our societies, but also often of the contemptible politics of fear and authoritarianism. It is those walled gardens that people live in that end up becoming the walled gardens of the mind. It's so interesting how you've you've drawn this fabulous picture from by giving over the design of our cities to this machine, this vehicle, which is uh, promoted for and used from the fuel of this massive industry, by giving yeah. that design over and then, oh, now we can build far away. Oh, now we can build far away from each other. We're no longer seeing each other. We're no longer seeing each other's faces. We're rolled right. off. We're, and and, and right. then it kind of puts this breeding ground. Um, I was saying that we were watching a, something on SBS the other night and it was it showed public housing in Italy. And, you know, we just turned mm. to each other like fucking public housing, just towers of despair everywhere in the world. You know, mm. they're built to try and solve a problem, but all they do is exacerbate a problem by the de- very design of the structure creates mm. slums, creates gangs, creates youth crime, oh, creates sure. drugs. I mean, that was true in New York City too. I mean, and, and infrastructure is a social issue. Yeah. You did touch on something which takes us to the new film. You touched on living in a suburban house, uh, living uh, far away from people, not seeing anybody else that doesn't kind of look like you, not being present to other cultures, other needs, other diversities of mobility, of able, of of economic uh, background, not ever seeing another country maybe. Mm. It brings us to this idea of how quickly, you know, radicalised used to be a word that we used for how did a, an 18-year-old kid decide to put on a backpack, walk into a restaurant and blow himself up. Ah, oh, he was radicalised, all right? And mm. how did being radicalised become a thing that white suburban, you know, mostly middle class or lower middle class people could be at risk of? Like, this is where it brings us to your, the film The Truth Has Changed. Like, were you able to look back and see it started to shift around here as to when people started to be able to be so easily manipulated into reacting with fear and anger? Well, as I say in the film, you know, I come from a family of Holocaust survivors. And I think my exploration of this idea of intergenerational trauma, of the trauma that is in your DNA because your last the generation right before you went through a genocide, is something that connected me with the people at Standing Rock that I worked on this film, Awake, A Dream from Standing Rock, which I helped produce and I directed one segment of the uprising at Standing Rock. So it's very hard for me to say there's an origin or a moment where this begins. But what I do know is that the politics of fear and division are used by those authoritarian forces in the world. Like Spalding Gray says, it's almost like an invisible cloud of evil and it gathers and it lands in different places of the, of the planet, Germany, Cambodia, you know, the United States. And I think that we know that there's a certain segment of the population uh, from John Dean's work, John Dean, the, the man who, inside the Nixon administration, who brought down Nixon uh, by testifying against him, that there is a certain section of the population which will gravitate towards authoritarianism. Maybe about 30%. 20%, 30%, all the time. They're just going to be there. The problem is when that crosses over into the mainstream. When the mainstream uh, population decides to buy into that philosophy, which is often a philosophy of fear. And so what was happening in the United States and still happening now 
is that these people, these white supremacist terrorists, have been taught that they are going to be replaced. They're going to be replaced by immigrants, by black people, by Jews, <laughs> by somebody who's not them. And this, of course, comes from the most brilliant and most damaging concept invented by that ideology, which is the concept of whiteness. If you make people white, as opposed to a variety of different ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds, you can unite them against an other. Whether that other is Jews. And nowadays, you look at a Jew and a, a German guy and say, wait a minute, they're different races? But, you know, racism, the word, its most current and predominant use became popular in the world during Nazi Germany, right? That was racism. And now we don't even think of those as people of different races. Race is a construct. And what we see is these people who are, quote unquote, white people, who self-identify as that, who are poor, being told that even though they have no money and they don't have health care, they don't, they don't have a lot of uh, resources, that they better watch out or else they're going to lose all their stuff because Mexicans are coming, someone's coming for them. And they play that race card over and over again to disadvantaged people, people who should be the natural allies of poor and disadvantaged black people and poor and disadvantaged people of color. And you start to divide and conquer. When you've also so built in those walls to other people in some aspects of mainstream society, right? And I mean the suburbs where people are not thought of as backwards and ignorant. And you tell them the same thing and they start to vote for Donald Trump. Then you're in trouble, right? We are in trouble in America. We had 70 million people vote for Donald Trump as opposed to 75 million for Joe Biden or something like that. That is an unbelievable number of people in a country that has said, I'm okay with racism, that has said, I'm okay with total ignorance. I'm okay with being against science. I'm okay with all these things. And why? Because the fear trumps all of that. And so we have a long way to go. And we got very lucky that we don't have another four years of Donald Trump. I think there's a huge uh, a collision of circumstances that created that Joe Biden victory. And I'm not a huge, huge fan of Joe Biden, but I think he's, he's doing better than I thought he would be doing. But, uh, but I guess I think it's primarily because he's listening to a lot of the coalitions that he created with Bernie Sanders. But where, where does this come back to? I think it comes back to this idea that we are separate. I'm not negating the, the very, very important identity politics. Certainly I'm not. I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. I know what it is to face white supremacy in my bones. You learn about that as a little child, you know, every night it's, you know, pass the salt and let's talk about Auschwitz. You know, it's like, that's why the way I grew up. So uh, I understand how important that is. But what I think we have to realize is that when those poor people are taught that they're white and that means they're better, or that means that they're in jeopardy or they're being taught to be afraid that's what you're seeing in the Capitol right there. And on January 6th, you saw those people be terrified of losing what they thought of as America. Yeah. Now, who told them that? Yeah. And to be anti-immigrant, one of the origins of the police in the first place. To be slave patrols is an origin of the police. Those were how police were created. They were created in the South to round up runaway slaves, and they were created in the Northeast to control immigrant populations. So we have to start to break these boundaries down. We have to have people start to be cognizant of the fact that racism hurts everyone. 
that right, white supremacy hurts everyone except for the elites, except for the colonialists, except for the billionaire class. It's interesting. You talk, we talked about colonialism earlier and that the fossil fuel industry is a modern version of, of colonialism. Like the first, I think it was in the British controlled West Indies was the first time that they went, oh, these black people are rioting. You know, because the the local population mm. were like, no, nah, fuck this, no thanks, we won't be working on your farms for no money, and that's how it was, was created. It's a construction of colonialism. Before that, they were just people. They were just people who happened to live where the stuff that they wanted was. When it comes to the seventy million that you spoke of, and, it, and certainly in my country, that's that you know, there's a lot of people who who fit that bill, who fit the bill of like, I'm white, I've lived my whole life, everything's been safe, I've had incredible healthcare in this country of Australia. I've had prosperity, I'm probably going to retire and everything's going to be fine, but I'm still terrified that someone's going to take my shit. At some part of me, or at least some people listening know somebody like that. What would you say to those people who are listening right now? People who go, I fe- felt that fear. I know what it is to be afraid of whoever's the latest person off the boat, which it honestly is. It's when the 50s in Australia, it was the Italians or the Greeks or the, you know, whatever. And then in the- Man, in, My other half is Italian, so I know this too. Yeah, yeah. So, and then in the, I remember my, my big brother told me a story once. He jumped in a cab and it was a Greek bloke in Melbourne. And he said, you know, the best thing that ever happened to us Greeks is when the Vietnamese arrived. You know, the best thing that happened to the Vietnamese right. when the Lebanese arrived. The best thing that happened to the Lebanese when the Sudanese arrived. Because it's just whoever was the last yeah. person to get off the plane. What would you say to people who felt that fear, Josh? Let go of your fear. Your fear's not making you happy. Your fear's making you miserable. That's what I would say. I mean, it's hard. It's traumatizing. I mean, honestly, we, we are living in a traumatized world and the trauma is coming back at us at every, at every opportunity, right? But everything I see is telling me to be afraid. How can I not be afraid? How can I let go of this fear, Josh? I don't want to be silly. I want to protect my family. Well, the first answer is ask the question because I don't think people are asking that question. I don't think they're saying, I am afraid. How do I let go of it? You know what I mean? And unfortunately, there's a lot of quite honest attempts, I think, on behalf of people to try and that they end up sounding so naive that they get knocked down. But I, I would say that you have to, well, first of all, <laughs> when you're saying I'm safe, it's like when people say, well, how could you be for abolishing the police? Well, okay, the police are there to protect you. If that's the case, then you have to recognize that they're not protecting everybody. That there's 2 million people in, this, in prison in the United States and the majority of them or, or overwhelmingly disproportionately black and brown or poor, right? So what is it that we're guarding? Like, I'm not free until everybody's free. I know that. If there's crime on the streets and I can't walk down the street any more than if the police are constantly coming and shooting people, right? So both of those things are uh, bad and they both stem from the, the fundamental inequality that we're, we're a part of right now. We have become obsessed with our own consumerism and obsessed with our own material wealth. And we have decided as a society that there is meaning in that. But the problem is that there isn't. That's how you get the white supremacist terrorist who's 18 years old. It's not just that he's been taught that he's going to lose out. It's also that this person has absolutely invested in something that's giving them a mental illness. Our society 
fetishizes guns. It prioritizes aggressiveness. It decides that a flat screen TV is going to make you happy. These are not the things that can make you happy. Look at these people at Walmart on Black Friday pulling products out of their neighbor's arms with violence that, that five seconds ago they never knew existed and didn't know they wanted. We have to disinvest in the material idea that, that happiness is somehow tied to materialism, right? I mean, aside from the piece of art that you have on, on the wall behind you, the musical instruments, I, I think that, that, yes, there are certain things that are going to make people happy. You know, I, I love the equipment that I, why not say I love the equipment that I used to make movies. I value it. You know what I mean? I value my instruments. I value that. But if I don't have anybody to play with or play for, what is the point? Our whole economy is based on a competitive race against each other to get more and more and more and more stuff. But I'll tell you something, growing up in New York or growing up in the woods of Pennsylvania, the most important thing is to have a good time. And that is never, ever about what you own. It's always about who you're with, whether that means you're with a tree and a beaver, or it means you're with your, your kids running up and down the stairwell. You know, here in New Orleans, I'm in the French Quarter. We live off the courtyard. There's all sorts of people. My neighbors, I love my neighbors. I would never want to have a wall around the house where I couldn't access those folks. These are the things that make us happy. Meaning in life makes us happy. And life is, let's phrase it, life is fucking terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. At any minute, you could die of a stroke or whatever happens to you. You don't know what's going to happen. And, and I think that that pushes us into a place of incredible uncertainty. Well, that uncertainty can't be materialized. That uncertainty and terror can't be militarized. That uncertainty and terror can't be you put in, in your bank account when you know that the, the deposit that you just made is going to drill a fossil fuel pipeline on a Native American reservation. We cannot take that fear and uncertainty and decide the way we will be best served by it is by oppressing other people, <laughs> right? Around when Trump first got in in 2016, I think many people identified one of the greatest problems there was writing off, dismissing and ignoring or calling stupid people that went for it. And that all did was, it was the backfire effect. It just pushed people f further into it. What Josh, mm -hmm. do you think when you you know when you reflect on the truth has changed, the most recent film that we can see here in a country, uh -huh. when you reflect on that, what can we do for the people that we truly love, that we love, and uh, part of our lives might be an uncle, an aunt, a, a, a brother, a cousin, someone we work with, who are sucked in by this stuff. You know, I was sitting at work yesterday and someone's bleeding on about passing the carbon point that you spoke of, 420 parts a million, which is fucking terrifying because there's 100 parts a million between ice ages and we are now 140 parts a million higher than we were before the Industrial Revolution. So it's fucking physics is coming. I don't care who is your favourite politician. Here, yeah, physics is coming and it doesn't give a shit. So what do we say to the people that we love, that we work with, that we care for, who are falling for this stuff? We don't want to write them off. We don't want to ignore them. We still want them in our lives. I think there's two answers to this. I think you have to decide whether they're persuadable or not, right? I don't think Martin Luther King spent a whole lot of time trying to convince the KKK not to be racist, right? So at a certain point, there's, certain, there's people who are just too far gone. 
and you just have to beat them. You have to outnumber them. But thankfully, you probably do. It's that 30% that John Dean talks about as having that constant proclivity towards authoritarianism, which will is the politics of fear, which will which will do all the things that we just mentioned, right? Be racist and be exploitative and be hmm. competitive and violent. And then there's that other 20, 30% of people that you really have to try with. And I say try everything. There's a statistic or a study that came out of Princeton University about what form of government America actually has. They took all these public policy questions and they took all the way, the reasons people voted and they matched them up against their representatives. And they found 70% of people want action on climate change. 80% of people want action on gun control. 90% of people want the minimum wage raised. But mostly those people didn't get what they wanted. Their politicians served the interests of their donors over the interests of the voters and the Princeton University, because of this study, came back and said, well, America is an oligarchy, not a democracy. Of course, Princeton was happy about that because half the oligarchs went to Princeton. But the idea that America is not a democracy was kind of shocking, right? And you go, wait a minute. Hmm. You know, when, when black people didn't have the vote, was America democracy? When women couldn't vote, was America democracy? wait a minute, for the majority of the history of our country, it was not and has not been a democracy. So you ask yourself, what did those people do? Everything. We made movies. We told stories. We held protests. We de developed new methods of defiance, civil disobedience. We created channels of power and networks. And we used the things that we could use to, to counter those things. So, you know, with the diehard Trumpers, I say you beat them, you make sure you're more in the majority and you work your ass off to, to, to win elections, right? But for everybody else who is in that gray area where, you know, they might, you have to do everything. My girlfriend is in this position right now where she has family members who are pro-Trump and she doesn't know what to do. She's besides herself. And she is, should I disengage or should I continue to talk? And she may have picked off a couple of them. So that's how it works. You start to get in there and you start to say, well, these policies mean these things. And this science is, is actual science, right? It's the same science that you use with your cell phone. You have to use every possible persuadable argument. Like my teacher, Ann Bogard, my, my, my theater teacher used to say, if you want to get something done, talk to the person next to you at dinner or the person next to you at breakfast. And the idea is become obsessed with changing things. So, and sometimes that means having confrontations. Um, that's another tool of this whole regime, which is that confrontation is mistaken as some form of abuse. Confrontation is not abuse. Confrontation, and you have to start to get good at confrontation. You don't want to get really angry. You don't want to get flustered. You don't want to get violent. You don't want to get aggressive. But that doesn't mean you can't be confronting of people. It's like the specials say, if you have a racist friend, now is the time for our friendship to end. That's uh, right. I right? knew I saw that hat from somewhere. I knew I recognized your hat. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> I fucking love that song, man. I love that fucking song. The, 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 the idea that you have a moral standard for your relationships doesn't, isn't a bad one, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying you want to isolate people to the point to which they pick up an AR-15 and march into a, a, you know, a shopping center. But... I think a lot of the 
mass shootings, especially by male white supremacists, has to do with libidinous rage and frustration. No one is seeing to the mental health of those people. They are ostracized, they are eliminated, and they find refuge in the most dastardly of ideology, which is racism and, and that. Uh, because they, look, I, I think you have to try everything. But don't, don't, don't give up. Yeah. Don't give up. It's very hard to do. It's so hard. There's going to be a thousand trials and tribulations in trying to move people. But you can't give up. The alternative is madness. The alternative is the next Hitler comes along at some yeah. point, right? Uh, just taking a moment away from Josh Fox to take a breather. I'll let you know about the other podcast I'm doing at the moment with James Matheson. It's a show called Idle Australians, I-D-L-E, Idle Australians. You can find it where you find your podcasts. Just type in Idle Australians, I-D-L-E. Uh, if you're bothered at all at the moment about, I don't know, say, you know, fundamentalist Pentecostal church people in charge of our country, which they are at the moment, you might be interested in a chat that we had about solemnity and reverence and how to be wary of things that are protected by solemnity and reverence. And it starts with, I think, the tale of the greatest Olympic hoax of all time, the fake torch at the Sydney leg of the 1956 Melbourne Olympic torch relay. We do go into the torch relay a little bit, but here's just a little taste. Idle Australians with James and Asha. The torch relay, the torch was lit in Athens in Greece for this one. And it started on the east coast of Australia from Cairns all the way down through to Melbourne. To qualify, you had to be able to run a mile in under six minutes. But in North Queensland, seven because it's hotter. Is that right? You got a new a far North Queensland discount. And the other thing you had to be able to do to carry the Olympic torch in 1956 was not have a vagina. Oh, right. Excuse me, speedy, athletic, yeah. and man. <laughs> yes. 100% man. Yeah. But, yeah, the torch made its way all the way down uh, the east coast and it was supposed to arrive at night around about half past seven in Sydney. Now, this is a time before TikTok. Television was barely, barely there. So if the Olympic torch is coming to town... Hey... Kids, jump in the Kingswood. We're going to check this out. Idle Australians with James and Asha. You can find Idle Australians in your podcast app, IDLE Australians. It's great to work with James Matheson again, and he and I are having a lot of fun making this show. The Ibis episode we put up the other day was a lot of fun. So uh, let's get back to Josh Fox, or you might hear an ad between now and Josh depending on what you've been listening to, depending on the luck of the draw, how you downloaded the show, where you, where you downloaded the show, what you've been looking at online. You might hear an ad, you might not. Let's go. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Josh, you speak of in, um, in The Truth Has Changed, you, you speak of the harassment from the oil and gas industry. You 
work mm. as a activist, you work in the making these films, you're you're deliberately you are you're going out there and literally poking the bear of of the in, you know the ingrained kind of structures of our community, of our society, of our globe. You probably know more facts, more shit about m- stuff that's terrifying than most people. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Bill McKibben, Bill McKibben wrote the introduction to the book version of The Truth yeah. Has Changed. And that's what he said. He said, Josh Fox has seen more, more shit than a lot of people. But you still, not every, not everyone that's listening knows what you know. And I, I ask people who are in, you know, climate activism this because it's just knowing what I know was enough to send me into psychosis. I had episodes of psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusions. I was on antipsychotics for a while. Just knowing what I know, just seeing what's at head. Right. It was fucking horrible. It took a long time to come out of. How do you, Josh, how do you wake up every day? How do you enjoy a cup of coffee? How do you enjoy the giggle of a kid? How do you do it? Um, well, I, I don't drink coffee, but I... Uh, okay, interview over. Uh, thank I you drink so much. whiskey, though. <laughs> um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Not in the morning. But um, I made a whole film about this, actually, called How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change which again, unfortunately, was not out in Australia. There are ways to watch things, but I don't know if you'll get paid for it. That's the problem, Josh. <laughs> no, 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 no. You Actually, you can watch How to Let Go on joshfoxfilm.com, which is worldwide. We put up all of my films that I own, except Gasland 2, unfortunately, on my website for free during coronavirus. So you can watch uh, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. And I got that to that point. So how to, I was making a film sort of like the Josh Fox guy about climate. It was like, oh, well, we beat the fracking industry in Pennsylvania and New York. Let's let's go to climate. And then all of a sudden it's like crash and burn. In the middle of the film, you realize like, oh, wow, it's going to be bad. And lots of bad things are going to happen. And it's overwhelming. And it's really a film about what you're describing, which is climate despair. Climate psychosis, climate despair. And... I solve the problem in the movie in a simple way. I go to try to find the people all around the world who have reached that point but haven't given up and to find out what they've done. And so I go to the Amazon and I'm with these incredible um, indigenous defenders of land and they take, they take us into the jungle to this oil spill. And I go to see Tim DeChristopher in Utah, blocked an oil and gas auction and spent two years in federal prison. And I go to uh, China to meet the people who are speaking out against the Chinese government, even at pain of whatever possible consequences a totalitarian government can throw at you. Uh, and I actually wound up in Newcastle, in the port of Newcastle, with the Pacific Climate Warriors, who are fighting to keep their islands above water by trying to block the coal ships coming out of Newcastle. Right. And uh, I just found in each one of those places a word that, that or, or a value that they held dear or that I felt like was coming out. So in the Amazon, it was courage. And in terms of the Pacific Islands, it was their resilience. In terms of Tim to Christopher, it was the principle of civil disobedience. You know, and so I go throughout the movie just trying to figure these things out. And and what I came to was that the last speech of the film, I, I paraphrase, is, you know, this is the only planet that we have that has love songs, as far as we know, you know. And that the world is not lost or saved all at once it's lost or saved every day and you know unfortunately that may be the best we can do right now i mean like we're just dealing with another horrific police execution in america right now and it does feel like 
this is one of those days where the world is lost, where you just, you cannot stand it anymore. You can't think, you can't see the manifestations of these systems and how they're working on people anymore. I can't watch another young black man get killed by the police for no reason at all. It's like you, you just feel lost on those days. And then the next day you have to figure out how to save the world that day because that's all that we have. And so for me, it's like, tell the truth, figure out how to tell the truth or talk about the truth. And the truth is changes about that. And also just, I think we, we have to do a lot more healing than we give ourselves an understanding for. I think before coronavirus, I think even for myself, it was like hundred miles an hour. Let's just go. Let's make tons of tons of things and try to go and every protest, every rally, everything I could you know, make. And then COVID hit and you're boom, you're stuck in, in your house. Or if you're lucky, you're able to be stuck in your house, right? And I think of it uh, as Levy Sanders, Bernie Sanders' son, said, a global call to introspection. And I think we have to use that introspection. Um, but in terms of getting through the day, you, you know, you, you have to do the things that are going to just, well, I'll say it this way. You're saying it because it's a reaction to the truth. And it's a willingness to get involved in a movement or in politics, right? And often that leads you to some incredible burnout, right? But you have to do the thing that you love as part of the movement, right? You have to do add that. Like, like if I had gone up to the people in 2008 who were telling me about fracking for the first time and said, I want to help you be an organizer, you know, I would have lasted three weeks. Because I'm the most disorganized person on the planet and I can't organize a sock drawer. You know, my editor just yelled at me last three weeks ago. He said, you're the most disorganized person on the planet. They said, no, I'm not. You know, but like as a filmmaker, if I went up to them, I didn't say I want to be an organizer. I said, I want to make a movie about what you're doing. You know, and that became Gasland. You know, 13 years later, I'm seven films later. You know what I mean? I'm still doing this because I love it. So you have to do the thing that you love except if you love writing really bad folk songs, just leave those at home. Um, but no, you have to do the things that you love. I'm just a joke. Um, have to, but you also then on the flip side of it, the thing that makes you special, then you have to do the thing that makes you not special. You have to show up as a foot soldier at the protest. You can't stay home. You have to show up at the action. You have to vote. You have to do all those things that make you not, you know, special. So I guess for me, it's like, what am I going to do today? to address this problem, but I'm also trying so hard to do something that I like to do. Of course, that means I have to do lots of things that I don't like to do, like write grants or file taxes or make phone calls to people to produce some, you know what I mean? But I guess the, the idea that, and the problem is that you always think, oh, it's going to be really painful. I'm going to have to work. I'm going to have to hold a clipboard on the corner. Well, no, there's people who love holding clipboard on the corner. I hate that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else because I'll find my resilience and I'll find my longevity and I'll find the love of what I'm doing that, that way. You can't be like taking your medicine. I mean, I think you also have to do, you have to let yourself off the hook. Climate change is the problem is the cause of a hundred corporations, right? It's a political problem. It's not your fault. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's everybody's collective fault, but you know, the idea that we have to beat ourselves up every single day of the week is I, I couldn't even imagine how terrible that would feel. So what's our next move? 
where people stop listening to this podcast, they put their phone down. What's the thing they do before bed? Well, you've got to get this crazy government. I mean, you still have this conservative government mm-hmm. in Australia. We you've do. You've got to get rid of them. I mean, I can't tell you how things have changed when we got rid of Donald Trump. Elections matter. Elections matter. I did my entire year was just about trying to convince people who said, oh, it doesn't matter. Bernie's not running. I'm not going to vote for Biden. I'm not going to vote at all. And those people can get really nasty. You know, but I felt like those were the people I might have some impact on, right? I wasn't necessarily going to appeal to the folks in the suburb. You know, I mean, I don't think I was. I was going to be able to get to some of the lefties who were like, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? No, this time it matters. This time, let's do it. And you did see a big change. So I think you had to focus on who you can persuade. But I, 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 elections matter. You've got to get these crazy people out of office. And I think also you have to connect the dots a little bit, like to the, the Uber, because the, the right wing always says the same shit. You know, it's the economy and we have to do this. But you have to tie the economy together to racism. You have to tie extractivism to, to climate change. You have to tie clean energy to justice. And then you're just having a conversation about things that are very hard for people to justify in the name of. But I wish I knew some things that were more local that were happening, initiatives, because all politics is local. I mean, most of the time we do screenings of my films, we're doing it in support of a local organization that, I mean, we put our films on on TV, on HBO, but I've toured to 500 cities across the world because we wanted to bring the film directly to a community that was facing a question like this, right? Mm. So we could help matriculate new folks into that organization. Yeah. So I think the most important thing you can do is join an organization. When we organize, we win. And not every organization is going to suit you. You know what I mean? Some organizations, you're going to go there and you're going to feel like, I don't like this place at all. Then leave. Find a different one. You know, there's 10 environmental organizations within a stone's throw of your house, probably. You know, find the one that that makes you feel most at home, most welcome, where you want to go, where you want to hang out. Because the bottom line is I've met all, all my friends are the people who I've met through the movement or through movies, right? It's all about that. And you have the most meaningful relationships when you're working with people on meaningful things. So, you know, skip the tennis lessons or whatever and go to the organizing meeting where people are fighting for the children's future. You're going to make better friends there. And the food is going to be better. All sorts of things are going to be better. You know what I mean? So I I just think, take your kids. Take them with you. I think you're right, Josh, because people have this idea that if I go to a meeting, it'll be people with dreadlocks who are screaming about everything. And every, well, it every- might be, but leave that meeting. There's always that person there. That's what I'm saying. It's like parts of my life, like, oops, I wore leather shoes. Oh, fuck, I'm in the wrong room. <laughs> as, as someone who own, only eats plants and has worn leather shoes from time to time, Josh, right. being on the other end of those conversations is tricky. But you will find wherever it is yeah. on the spectrum of how far you're willing to go, like you might have found your way to change yourself to bulldozer meeting, but there's probably uh let's go and have coffee with the MP and try to let him know we don't like logging meeting. Go find that meeting. There's all there's all of those. And if you are one of those people who love chaining yourself to bulldozers, I love you. Yeah. I'm one of those people too. And those are often our most traumatized people. Our frontline soldiers are always the traumatized people. And I know that from my own self. So find that healing also. Find those doctors, find those shrinks, find those plants, whatever it is, that's going to get you over that moment because we all have been there, you know. And don't feel like you have to hang out with the 
person with dreads who's berating you about the whatever. If anything, New Orleans has taught me, which is a lot, um, it is how to celebrate. You've got to celebrate every day. And here, people just out in the street, you know, they do parades and get drunk and listen to jazz music and call each other baby. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that at all. So you have to celebrate life. You can't make it a, a, a chore. Here in New Orleans, is something I'm, a, I'm, I'm an outsider looking in at, at. They dance at the funerals. You know, they dance with jazz music at the funerals. And that's the celebration of a person's life. And I think we have to find ways to do that. That was what was so amazing. If you watch How to Let Go on my website, the Pacific Climate Warriors going to Newcastle. Oh, my God. Their, their whole slogan was, we are not drowning. We are fighting. And they said it with this incredible joy. They had hand-carved canoes stopping coal ships that were the size of the Empire State Building. It was like being in that last scene in Star Wars, you know, where you have these tiny little things approaching the Death Star. You know, that sort of defiance, that sort of resilience it is an energy that you can tap into. I believe in that. You know, if I didn't believe in it, I, I, would, I don't think I would still be doing this right now. I think I'd be totally uh, burned out. So take care of yourself, celebrate, and join something local. You're going to meet new friends. You're going to meet new lovers. You're going to meet new best friends. You, how do you fight climate change? You leave your house. You know you're really doing it when you've left your house. Don't do it by just clicking. Of course, during COVID, this is incredibly ironic, right? Yeah. Now I say, you know you're fought fighting climate change if you leave your house in the least carbon-intensive possible <laughs> way. <laughs> I don't know. Get involved. Get involved. Yeah. Get involved. Don't be afraid. Unfortunately, we have this machine in our hands, this little phone. We feel we've done yeah. something when we've liked. We feel we've done something when we've gone. That's a good post. I'll forward it. Job done. And then, no. It's like, I did something, so I feel better. And then you don't do the thing. So forget the clicking part. It's like the poker machine. It just gives you enough to make you want to. Yeah, but it's not, it's not the end. Well, we didn't really talk about the truth has changed, but I think everybody <laughs> should watch it. It's a great movie. I think just <laughs> listening to you, I think we have sparked enough curiosity that people go, I've got to check out this movie this cat has made because this guy's this guy knows what he's talking about. You can watch them at joshfoxfilm.com. I'm so grateful to speak to you, mate. I could have done hours and hours and hours with you, but I know you're a very busy person and you've got an editor that's on your back. Great, man. I really appreciate this conversation too. Dude. Great questions. And I, it made me think a lot, you know. Real honor to speak to you today, Josh. I'm, I never dreamed, never dreamed that I'd ever get a chance to talk to you, mate. Well, if I get to Australia, we're going to have to take that guitar down off the wall. Dude. And do a little something. I don't know. I have mine here. I do, I'm, I'm practicing guitar lately, but uh, I'll bring my banjo. That's an ovation. We'll I did clock the fingernails on the right hand. I was like, there's something a little more going on there. Yeah, yeah. that's banjo. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Come on down. It'd be great to have you here, buddy. Uh, I, I'd love to. And ladies and gentlemen, that was Josh Fox. You can find him, you can find his films all at joshfoxfilm.com. That's where he is. Thank you so much, Rachel Barrett, for being my executive producer and all-round legend. Thank you for Andy Marr for being the audio producer on this show and all-round legend. Bruce Steele did all the research. Mike Mills made the music. And you listened because without this show, without you, sorry, without you, there is no show. No show. Uh, see you Thursday for Idle Australians. I'm back here on Friday. Until we speak then, sleep well. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. <laughs>